The only school that teaches you about money is the school of hard knocks. Until now. You need to learn this business, and this is the time to do it. Become an insider. So you have to know the rules before you get in the game. Welcome to the Money MBA Podcast. Oh, have I got your attention now? Where you'll learn how to be a master of money. There's so many ways to make money today. Let me show you in two seconds flat why the rich get richer and the poor get poor. Now here's your host, Jonathan Katsmita. Welcome to another episode of the Money MBA Podcast, The Quarantine Sessions. So I am currently in a 14-day mandatory hotel quarantine in Sydney, Australia. Uh, this is a requirement of anybody entering the country. And I figured while I'm going through this, what better time than to reach out to some of my friends in the finance world, reconnect, get their thoughts on the world and the year 2020. And no better person to speak to than the next guest who really needs absolutely no introduction. And it's Mr. Grant Williams of the infamous newsletter, The Things That Make You Go, hmm, among many, many other contributions to the finance world, including Real Vision. So currently, uh, you can find Grant Williams uh, producing various episodes of the Grant Williams podcast. And uh, most recently, he's had a co-host join him, another brilliant mind, Bill Fleckenstein, where they've been producing the Endgame series, if you will, where I believe they have, at this point, um, well over 15 various guests contributing to this uh, Endgame concept. So we talk about that. We talk about the podcast um, episodes and series. Um, actually, to be honest, quite briefly, you know, Grant, somebody that I had the pleasure of meeting around this time last year in London. And when we sat down together and hung out, uh, we spoke for many hours and um, for the most part, we didn't talk about anything finance related. And uh, I think Grant and I really got to know each other on a personal level. And uh, for a lot of the conversation, although it is finance related, you can feel um, both the direction I take it and he take it takes it that we're really fishing out the human element of what's going on in the world and in the financial markets. So again, Grant Williams is probably one of the best at that. Um, in addition to just kind of getting behind the curtain on what's going on um, in various financial aspects of the markets. So this is a very deep dive conversation, kind of goes all over the place, but it actually does have, to some extent, a linear path. And uh, I really, really hope you enjoy um, this interview. It was uh, very nice of him to grace us or grace me with uh, his presence for so long. And um, I don't think you'll you'll regret um, committing to the entire interview because there's tons of nuggets in there. And and anytime Grant decides to share his wisdom, it's uh, something for all of us to stop, uh, listen, and experience. So please enjoy um, this special episode of the Quarantine Sessions Money MBA podcast with uh, special guest Grant Williams. Grant Williams, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and bringing me a, some little bits of sanity where I can get them while I'm over here. Well, well, we'll see. You, you, that's probably a call to make at the end of it, mate. It's good to see you. How are you? Good, man. Thank you. It's great to see you. So you're, looks like you're in your own little state of quarantine yourself over there in uh, Cayman Islands. You know, no, it's actually strange. This, um, this place is, life is completely normal here. There's no COVID here. Uh, they jumped on it very early. They shut the borders in March, which seemed like a really extreme thing to do. Um, and they went to like a full lockdown. We had, you know, you could only go to grocery store on alternate days. It was masks everywhere. And, but they, they basically wiped the virus out pretty quick. 
And for the last, you know, five months, I guess, it's been completely normal. There's no masks, there's no social distancing. It's completely normal and there's zero COVID. There's, they've got quarantines in place. If you come into the island now, if you're a returning citizen or, or you have a work permit, you spend two weeks in isolation. Um, but once you're out of that, it's, it's, it's free. It's, it's, it's kind of a strange, strange place to be given everyone I know is under some kind of lockdown at the moment. Yeah, so I didn't think we'd jump right into COVID, but why the heck not? Um, you know, <laughs> what else is there? To talk about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If people can't figure it out yet, I mean, you know, I'm in my own state of 14 day quarantine as I'm attempting to enter Australia, and you know, part it's similar mindset for me coming back here. There's other things I'm looking to accomplish, but you know, one of the reasons where you're like, okay, I'll go through the quarantine is you feel like you're going in an environment that's um, irrespective of the health factor, at least socially you can have that connection again and it feel normal. Uh, ironically, yeah. within days of being here, they had a small cluster in yep. the northern beaches of Sydney. And, um, you, know, you know, being American and, or being from the U.S. And, and, and kind of having the sense of a total lockdown while being in Puerto Rico in March through most of the year. So, you know, being your neighbor, I, I kind of felt, you know, what it was like to see a small island go full lockdown, hyper-quarantine, yeah. curfews. But then, you know, that, that got old really fast. Flew over to the U.S. to be with my family in Florida. And it was just such a, you know, it was wide open. Of course, you know, the media will tell you that the cases and everything's going crazy. But it's, it's, it's a weird world, obviously, that we're, that we're in. You know, and now that you're, you know, you're kind of hanging out in, in Cayman Islands and it feels normal and being the... Um, you know, the economic thinker that you are, doesn't it kind of feel, it just feels phony, right? Like at a certain mm. point, you can't, Cayman Islands is not going to be immune to this, right? It's a mutating yeah. virus and the economic damage that this is causing for this temporary sense of, of you know, we'll call it health or, or peace of mind, where do you really see this? How long do you see this thing going? Well, I mean, unfortunately, as you and I well know, right, the time part of this is is like it's, it's the X variable that we just cannot we cannot um, um, plot for, unfortunately. But it's interesting, you know, here in in Cayman, um, we you know, we've seen some restaurants close now, and obviously, without the tourist industry here, it, there's a lot of businesses that are really struggling. But life doesn't feel like it's a struggle out on the streets. It's not noticeable. You know, I mean, I don't really go that many places here. I've noticed that the bars near where I live, uh, when I walk the dog and stuff, are, are probably 25% of the capacity they used to be at, but I presume most of that is because the tourists are missing. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but what really brought it home to me uh, in, I guess, August, uh, August or September, I was in the UK and I spent some time in London. And... Uh, there it really hit me because I was I was staying in the centre of London, Piccadilly Circus, uh, and you know this is where I grew up, so I know that area very well. And yeah. to look out of the window of my Airbnb apartment at Piccadilly Circus, deserted at eight o'clock in the morning, ten o'clock midday, two p.m., five p.m., eight p.m. It didn't matter. It was it was deserted, and you when you see that, um, you realise that. Whilst that's not necessarily a big place where people work, it's it's a real tourist spot. It, there wasn't a single business within a three mile radius that wasn't struggling materially around there. I mean, it was whether it's 
souvenir shops, whether it's, right. you know, the M&M shop, whether it's restaurants, cafes, whatever it may be, every business for miles around was struggling. And when you see that, you realize the real world implications of, of what's actually happened this year. And I think I've spoken about this before, but you and I spend our time and a lot of the people we talk to immersed in financial markets. Yeah. And it gives you such a different read on this. You know, when, when we look at 2020, a lot of people are going to be talking about their returns for the year, which if they did nothing are going to be pretty good. You know, yeah. this is going to be a pretty good year. And, and even if you, even if you, you panicked in March and sold a load of stuff, um, if you recovered your kind of intestinal fortitude quickly enough, you would have made it all back and more. So I think anyone that inhabits the financial world has a completely different read on, on what 2020 is all about. And that just, I think, feeds this, this inequality um, uh, situation that really is becoming more and more pronounced as, as the days go by. And I, and I think that's the thing going into 2021 that... Um, that worries me. And as we came into 2020, I, I wrote a piece at the beginning of the year talking about the things that worry me the most and, and the, the inequality and the rise of kind of anger on both sides was something that I, I was worrying about for 2020. Obviously I didn't see COVID coming. Um, but that, that concern I have is only amplified now because the, you know, the haves have done incredibly well this year and the have nots are really, really struggling. So I, 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 I think, the, the, the real damage done by this pandemic is probably going to start to reveal itself from an economic sense in 2021. And I, I, they're going to throw more money at it. They're going to print more. They're going to um, put, apply more stimulus to do all these things. And as long as it works, that's great. But until the efficacy of that stimulus and that printed money and all the stuff they're doing goes directly into the arteries of Main Street, America, Main Street, UK, Main Street, Australia, I think you are storing up some real trouble for, for some point in time down the road. Yeah, once you, once you try to step away from the financialization of, of everything, um, and I, I don't know, you know how many you know, people in, in our various financial circles spend a lot of time outside of just looking at their window, looking at Piccadilly Circus and, and, and seeing it so pronounced, but really you know, getting to the root of it, going to let's say the United States, small town America, um, it makes your head spin because it, it's, there is no relief. And, and like you're saying, I mean, looking at 2020 as crazy as it was and looking at, you know, most people's balance sheets and it's one of the best years they've ever had. Whereas how many people, you know, are in line at food banks. I can't yeah. even imagine. I, I literally can't, I can't get my head around what the last let's say nine months have been. And then in, in, in terms of government in the U S they celebrate passing a bill. that's going to send them a bloody $600 check. It's, it's amazing. Right. And, and you just, if you look at, if you look at the, the figures about the increase in wealth of the Bezos and the Musks and the gates of the world this year, I mean, it's obscene, frankly. It's utterly obscene that they are that they are doing this and, and writing these checks for six hundred bucks. And and you know what's even more obscene, frankly, is um, is all the pork that's been put into that bill. Now, obviously, there's been an awful lot of fuss made about it, um, and and Trump has used it very well for political ends. Yeah. But let's face it, this is not a one-off, right? All these bills have this stuff shoved into them. It just happens this one's come along at a very politically polarized. Uh, moment 
I mean, really not even a time, it's a moment and it's been used for those reasons. I mean, every single one of these bills has this kind of stuff shoved in it. And one can only hope that that uh, shining a light on this stuff at this particular point in time actually has an effect and people do start to to feel the kind of anger, frankly, they should at this stuff. I mean, yeah. some of the some of the stuff that's happening, and to your point, you know, the, the people end up with a $600 check yeah. and now, you know, they're trying to make political capital, everybody saying, oh, no, we want to make it two grand. Well, you know, look, look at Bezos, look at Musk, look at how much money these guys have made this year because of the $2 trillion they threw at, at risk assets. You know, it's, 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 it's frustrating because it's just complicated enough for people to not be able to join the dots. And there's really a very short series of dots to be able to join to understand what's really going on here. But it's just complicated enough that if you aren't au fait with finance, you don't understand the transmission mechanism, yeah. you can be bamboozled by people saying, we are here to support and stimulate and help you. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, yeah, like you said, a lot of these, these bills have a, a lot of pork shoved in them. But again, it goes, I think it goes back to the disconnect. That I'm, I'm, that's where I'm most fascinated with all of this. And it's, it's kind of like, how, how could Trump have ever been elected is still something that we'll refer to it as the left, but people who, who just aren't you know, a supporter of him they still can't get their head around it and, and they're not yeah. listening and they're not paying attention. And, and when you look at the fact that, can you imagine the nerve if it wasn't government, right? Imagine you or I running a business and the, the, the company said, look, we're not, we're on, on our knees here trying to survive as a business. So we're not paying any of you. Okay. And we're going to get it together though. We're going to re- resurrect this business. And once we do, you know, we'll pay you. And then we finally get to a point where we, we tell all the employees who've been working hard and, and hanging in there for the year that, look, you're going to get $600, but we're actually going to pay, you know, Sedan a billion just because this is, you know, what we normally do is, is stuff these bills with garbage. Yeah. Yeah. So the, 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 the nerve that in, in, the, in light of the situation, that that would even be something that they would even consider doing. And, and the stupidity of it, knowing that they have Trump on the other end, who's just waiting to pour gasoline on that and, and politicize yeah. it. it. It just, again, it just shows us, it's, it's so heartbreaking to see that we have such a disconnect, not only on the streets, there's no you know, discourse, but when you look at what government is doing, it's like, you've been in an ivory tower so long that you believe that this is your fight for your own, call it you know, legacy or ego, and you're that disconnected from the people you're supposed to be representing that this is your end result. Well, I, I, I don't think they do think about it. I don't, I don't think it's a conscious decision. I think when a bill comes up, they're just so used to trying to shove all this stuff in for vested interests and the lobbyists that support them. They, they, it's, it's a reflex action. They don't stop and think, you know, is this a good idea? But, <laughs> but what's, what's interesting about this now, this, this moment in time where we are, um, is just the power of social media to to make people aware of what's going on. You know, we haven't really had the ability to for people to understand what goes into these bills. And this isn't something that's happened in 2020, but the longer this goes on and the more entrenched social media becomes, the more this stuff actually does get shared. And yeah. Yeah. we're in an age where outrage is 
is what gets shared. You know, people are are far more likely to to spread something outrageous than than something positive because there's just so much anger built up. So they're playing a very dangerous game in doing this stuff now, because you know the Pelosi's of the world who've said no to the bill, and you know all these guys who've been you know AOC comes out and tweets one day how the bill's five thousand pages, nobody could read it, it's awful, and then and then votes yes the next day for it. You know, it's a 5,900-page bill. Nobody has read it. Not one single person has read it, I will wager. Um, and if they have, it's a you know, it's some staffer somewhere down the ladder who's been told, or they've pieced it out to a group of staffers to get it read in time. Yeah. They've shortened it and given them the, the, the most salient points that they believe to be the case. You know, it, it's, the whole thing is actually farcical, frankly. Um, but, but again, I think... When 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 you look at, I mean, my timeline has been lit up with all this stuff. My Twitter thread, I don't use Facebook or anything, but uh, but my Twitter thread has been lit up with this stuff today. And one can only imagine what the people who are really angry and who, who generally do focus on this kind of stuff and the algorithms are going to serve this thing to them way more times than they're going to do it from me. So I, I think, <clears throat> I think um, this is a very, very dangerous game they're playing. Uh, right now, and I think it could backfire horribly on on all of them. This isn't a this isn't a partisan thing. I think they're all as bad as each other. Yeah, and then and then with that in mind, as you mentioned, social media, you have it's just coming from every angle, and it's a bit of the fourth turning. And I'm sure a lot of this is motivation for your your podcast and the in game series that you're doing, which we'll talk about. But you know, you, then you have freedom of speech suppression that is just as blatant as the stupidity of, of this bill, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's one of those things, again, where you step back and say, do you really think you're getting away with this? Like, all, it's the idea of like, you know, pretending like you have nothing behind your back when your hand's behind your back. It's like, I can, yeah. I can, I can yeah. see what you're up to, right. you know? And, and, and so I, how do you see the, just overall, that, that element of censorship coming into play here, not only in terms of further sparking these these flames but how frightening that is to the bigger picture kind of on it's almost like early chapters of a dystopian novel yeah well what's interesting is if you if you read any future history uh, any book that was written way back when about now or the times to come it's a pretty standard roadmap there are there are three or four points that just about every person writing about the future no matter what point they were writing about it hits on and they are generally suppression of free speech, right? For, go back to 1984. They're kind of the, the melding of the party. They're kind of the, 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 the stratification of wealth and the, and the fact that the elites, it, it's, it's, and I think that's, that's because it doesn't take an awful lot of foresight to think about human nature and think about the fact that most people will act in their own self-interest. And there's an awful lot of power at stake here. If you're, if you're running for president of the United States of America, you are running for the most powerful position of all seven point whatever billion people on the planet, essentially, is what, is what you are looking to be. And so it, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, frankly, that there is um, evidence that there has been tampering in the election. Yeah. I, and, I'm, and I'm sure... This is not a Democrat-only thing. I'm sure both sides will do whatever they can to win that election because it is there's more power, more money that comes with this. Hell, look at the pork in this bill, right? Yeah. So this is 
this is human nature. This is not left, right. This is human nature. Now, um, because of that, it, it, it actually becomes probably more scary the more you think about it because we're such creatures of habit. Um, when you think about information and if you put yourself in the position of the people in power and the pressure they're under, you just go back to the French Revolution. Go, go back to any point in time where you see this kind of anger boil up and think to yourself, okay, if, if I was back in 17th century France, for example, what would I have done differently? Well, you'd find a way to stop the information spreading, right? If, you, if people don't know about it, and it was much easier back then to stop that information, and it still got out. It took a little longer, but it got out. So it's perfectly natural, and I think we're going to see a lot more of this. I think um, the, the moves that Twitter and the like are making to, uh, to kind of flag content for whatever reason they believe it to be you know, unverified is only going to get worse because they are going to come under a lot more pressure from uh, the government, the antitrust, the monopolies, whatever it may be, those giants are going to come under a lot more pressure and they're obviously going to want to maintain their, their business. They're going to want to maintain their market. They're going to play ball. It's as, it's as simple as that, really. Um, so I, I, I don't think we're anywhere near the end. I think we're much closer to the beginning of this phenomenon than the end. The only, I guess the only question I have is the kind of the shape of the curve of its acceleration. That, that's what really worries me is that we, we're at a point where necessarily this starts to happen a lot quicker because social media spreads the information quicker. So the, 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 the countermeasures need to come in quicker and be stronger and be, you know, it's, that's what worries me is that we're at a point where what's happened is going to become apparent to more people. And so the desire to get that information out and the desire to stop it are going to have to ratchet up um, very, very fast. And that, that worries me. And so all this obviously impacts markets, but before going there, I mean, I think one of the things that, um, you know, I consider you best at is, is, is telling stories, but also telling the human side of the story. And when you think about a lot of the things that are going on and, and even just the, the first, you know, part of this conversation we're having, where does your mind go in terms of, of the, the social ramifications, you know, call it civil unrest, civil war, like, do you play that out in your head in terms of the, being the first part of what would then lead to knock-on effects in the market? Or have, have, have things become so bifurcated that we're almost, it's like medieval times, you're either living in a castle or you're, you're digging in the muck? Uh, look, I, I, think, um, I, I think anyone that doesn't think these things through is, is making a mistake. Now, there's, there, there's, no, um, there's no right conclusion to come to. Um, but I, I, I gave a presentation in uh, January of 2015 uh, in Scandinavia called The Consequences of the Economic Peace. And it was like a play on words on the Keynes book, uh, The Economic Consequences of the Peace. And, and he wrote that talking about what had happened to the world in the, in the wake of the Versailles Treaty and how that mm. basically affected the, the global order and it led to World War II. And my point was we've, we've kept the economic peace for so long now um, with QE and whatever it may be, this effort to stop risk assets falling, that there will be consequences of that period of economic peace. And as I went through it all, the presentation, I was walking people through the history of the sort of 19th century and the 20th century and, and conflict uh, within the context of, of the finances of, 
of Europe and, uh, and other such places. And you can see very clear links throughout history to times like this and conflict. And generally speaking, when you get times of economic turmoil, uh, a war seems to be, some people would call it a solution to, to those problems. Some would call it a false flag exercise, whatever it may be. But the outcome tends more often than not, let's say, to, to end in conflict of some sort. Now, whether it's against a foreign enemy to try and take people's minds off the internal strife that they're feeling economically or not, or whether it's uh, you know, an internal enemy, whatever it may be, people react to, to conflict and they pick a side. And if you can make it uh, in people's best interest to pick your side, it's actually a useful thing to do. And so I went through this whole thing and, and, I, and I really just, just showing examples from the past and, and what it had meant previously. And the first question I had uh, in the Q&A session after this, a gentleman in the front row put his hand up and I kind of said, yeah, yeah. And he said, are you saying there's going to be a war? And I said, no, I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm, what I'm very definitely trying to say is there's not, not going to be a war. And, and I think until the last 15 years, you were pretty safe to say, we're not going to have a war. There was no real tension anywhere in the world, that, apart from the Middle East, and that's been going on for so long now that you don't think of that as drawing other actors in apart from you know, the, on various incidents. But it's an ongoing conflict. But it, we're not talking you know, internal in Europe. We're not talking conflict between the US and China. And I think... If you sat anybody down today and said, how confident are you that, that there's no chance of there being some kind of war in the world, absent, absent the Middle East? I think you'd be very hard pushed to find more than a handful of people who say, oh, no, I'm, I'm very confident in that. And that shift is, uh, is I think, a, a very important one for people to understand, particularly you mentioned the fourth turning there when you're asking the question. Uh, I think anyone that has read... Um, Neil Howe and Bill Strauss's amazing book will understand what, what you're talking about. And if anyone out there hasn't, then it's, it's such a highly recommended read. I can't recommend it highly enough. And, and we are in a fourth turning now. And, and as, as Bill and Neil lay out so beautifully, fourth turnings are characterized by conflict. And, and traditionally, they are harbingers of some kind of major conflict, which is a, you know, kind of a clearing event. And I think the longer we... Um, we stop clearing events in markets. The troubling thing is that the more pressure we build up of a clearing event somewhere else, because you can feel that tension in the air, whether it's around your own family dinner table at Thanksgiving when politics comes up or in the street or you know, wherever it may be. And so it's, it's time, I think, for people to, to contemplate real tail outcomes, um, particularly on the left tail. And, and, as I, as I often say, just just think these things through for yourself and think about what likelihood you, you put on them happening. And if they do happen, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for your physical well-being, first of all? And secondly, you know, your, your financial well-being. And, and do you need to do anything differently to get yourself better prepared depending on the, the, the sort of handicapped outcome you, you give on these things happening? And I think everyone needs to go through that. And if you decide... I'm fine, and I don't think this is a major problem. That's absolutely, that's absolutely okay. But if you think, you know what, there is a much greater risk to me right now, look at my portfolio, I'm not prepared for that to happen, then it's time to start you know, preparing for that and, and trying to make sure that you have a contingency plan. 
So do you think in a, in a certain way, and I'm, I'm asking this question almost for myself, right, is that we're kind of living examples of the moral hazard because, um, you know, you've been writing your newsletter for a long time and, and people within the, the market space who had access to it understand, you know, your ability to kind of break these things down and, and, and tell a wonderful story and, and really get the, the idea to sink in. And in early days of Real Vision, you really carried the torch in terms of getting someone like me access to, to that type of thinking. And it's very grounded, right? And, and you, you, you read it or you listen to it or you watch it and it makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, whether kind of be your views or things that you shared on, on sound money policy and gold and, you know, all the things that you've contributed to the space. But then after a period of time, you're like, I get it. That, that's, that's how the economy should work. This is a more, you know, fair and supportive system. Now we're, we'll just use 2007 as kind of as a, as a marking point, but there's, yep. There's plenty of other, I mean, Greenspan going back to the dot-com bubble, but I mean, so let's just say we're, we're roughly, we're well over a decade past that. And we've seen multiple QEs and we've kind of learned that QE isn't really inflationary because it's just, you know, creating more or less credit on a balance sheet. But we also see that the end result of it in, in other, other types of ways. But I guess the point of my question is, is you kind of get to the point, you know, talking about war and talking about these potential outcomes and these knock-on effects. And, and we, you know, if you aren't thinking about this, you're, you're really missing the, you know, the, the bigger picture and the potential narrative that plays out here. But that could be another 30 years. Mm-hmm. I'm just being yeah. facetious when I say that. No, and no, so, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And so it gets kind of, it gets kind of um, not troubling, but it, it, it throws a wrench into your thinking process because it, it, it really feels like the dots are just going to line up. Shit's going to hit the fan. And, you know, thank God I have these, you know, various types of reserve assets, whether it be gold, you know, guns, et cetera. So it feels like we're slowly being converted to the moral hazard that a lot of people just jump on because, you know, interest rates are low and, you know, Fed put is there. Um, I feel like it's even converting some of us where like, I know I'm right. I know shit's going to hit the fan, but I'm, you know, I'm almost slowly FOMOing into this nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think, um, I think the, the the problem people have is is separating out this idea of what could possibly happen with how they position their portfolio. For example, let's say if, over time, risk asset prices go up. That's just what they do, right? So if you just boil it down to pure inflation, they just they just go up. Mm-hmm. So you you always have that in the back of your head that risk assets are going to go up over time. Now there will be periods where you can buy them thinking, oh, they always go up. You know, if you if you bought them in um, in nineteen fifty six, for example, you had thirty odd years of going nowhere until they got back to where they were. So, but ultimately, if you have a long enough time frame, they go up. So, the the bias is to be long over time. Uh, when you think about these extreme outcomes, and you and you sit and you ponder through the risks to that base case scenario that equities go up risk assets go up over time. There's no necessity on your part to go short the market, right? I mean, and and I think a lot of people will listen to short sellers, for example, and assume that they're always short. 
every stock they talk about, they constantly run a short position and every day the stock goes up, they lose money. And that's, that's just not the case. But the danger is in assuming risk asset prices go up all the time and ignoring the potential at, at any point in that upward journey where you could have a major correction. Um, and so that's why I think it is, is so missing. And that, and that was one of the reasons why I started to write Things I Make Go Home was not to be pessimistic and not to just moan about the world, but to point out the things that, hey, look, we know they're going up over time. And I know you can tune into a thousand websites and they'll give you all this positive news because everyone wants you to buy stocks and the news flow is going to be generally positive. That's going to be the tailwind. And that's great. But you do need to think about what can go wrong. You need to think about what would a recession in Australia, where you are now, what would that mean? Uh, We haven't had one in 30 odd years. No. So because we haven't had one in 30 years, no one's thinking about it. But if it happens, it could be a major, major problem for Australia. In the housing market, housing, pri- market, uh, housing prices never go down nationwide in the US. Well, you'd have been absolutely safe thinking that for 50 years yeah. and then been carried out on a stretcher in the space of, of you know, less than 12 months. So it really is a, a matter of thinking about what could go wrong. And that's, that's just basic risk management. Once you've decided what can go wrong, you then have to think, okay, how likely is it to go wrong? And if you put that likelihood at 1%, you probably don't need to do anything about it, but be aware of it and then monitor it as, as, as the world carries on and life passes you by. Monitor that potential risk. And if you see it escalating, there will come a point in time where you probably need to, to do something about it and, and make changes to your portfolio. But if you're not aware of the potential pitfalls and you just assume things happen and they go up, um, then the 99s of the world and the 98s of the world in Asia and the, and the 2007, eights of the world and the 2011s of the world and the 2012s of the world and the March of this year of the world, they're all going to catch you by surprise. And you know, the one thing you really want to avoid if you're investing over a lifetime is the big drawdown. It's the big drawdowns that kill you. So it, it pays everybody to, to think about what can go wrong, think about it objectively, handicap it appropriately, and then take whatever action they feel is in their own best interest. That's, that's really, it, it's no more than that. And, and people who tell you with absolute certainty what's going to happen, right. you shouldn't really listen to because none of us know. People who tell you when something's going to happen, you definitely shouldn't listen to because that's the one thing we're all searching for. But people that tell you what could happen and explain how it might happen and why it might happen, I think are really worth listening to because that's information that you can then take yourself, process through your own lens and your own situation and decide how meaningful that is to you. And I think everybody should be thinking about that the the entire way. And by all means, discount things as often as you want, but be aware of them and you know, that, that recession risk in Australia is something I've been talking about for quite some time. Yeah. And it's the, 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 the chances of it are creeping up. And anyone that's been reading my work knows exactly what it will do to the Australian housing market, the Australian stock market, uh, what the Aussies will do with their bond, uh, uh, QE, interest rates, all that stuff. They know exactly. And so hopefully when March came around and the recession risk rose to near certainty, 
the Australian government did all the things that I've been talking about for quite some time in terms of taking rates down, starting QE, and the bond yields went where they were obviously going to go. But it didn't happen overnight, and and you wouldn't have had to do something about it when I first started talking about it, except make a note that oh, this is interesting. There's a there's something that could happen here, and if it does happen, there are some really good ways to capitalize on it, or there's some things I need to get out of the way of. That's what it's all about. People get fixated upon the trade, and people get fixated upon the actionable idea. When to get an actual idea or a trade at precisely the right time when you can put it on and be right straight away and make money and then take it. It just doesn't happen that way. It as does, you, as you it will does on TikTok, right? It does on TikTok. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, just, you're, just, you're just not up with the times, man. Uh, no, listen, I know. I'm a grandfather now, so. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, kind of using that joke as an interlude, I mean, for me, this is you know, having conversations with super intellects like Mike Green and, and other guys that work with him, like Jason Buck. And if you haven't had time to chat with him, I recommend it. And he's a super smart guy, um, really down for a chat. And I mean, these are, these are long volatility guys. And, yeah. and this has been for me, even to be at a point where I'm sitting in a chair talking with you, yet yeah, you and I have, have, have built rapport over some time and got to, to chat in other places, but just being in a place where I can even keep up with the conversation has been a, it's been a decade, right? It's been a long journey and it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's having the interest and motivation to dive into it. And for me, the thing that it, it's frustrating is because the average person can't, number one, they're playing with a set of rules that they don't realize are antiquated, right? But they're playing with, with, in a game that it's, there's just so disadvantaged, right? They're going up against the chess masters who actually changed the rule of chess without letting them know. Right. And, and it's interesting when you talk about short selling and, and, and all that type of stuff and, and having these conversations with these super intelligent guys, super brilliant when it comes to understanding markets and how to play markets. And they're in this volatility space. So they, they take the themes and narratives that you and I can talk about over a pint and they structure these incredibly you know, fascinating trades and positions around it that seek to capture good times. Right. And so you're not just bleeding out, waiting for the end of the world, but they are, are so aware of, of those tail risks and they're positioning the portfolio to, to capture the asymmetric, you know, payoffs that, that hopefully come with them. And so it's, it seems to me, even us having this conversation, it, it's how's the average person even capable of getting involved if they wanted to. And I feel like that's part of the reason why you see these bubbles form, right? It's, it's, yeah, you can call it FOMO, but I, I think people are, are, are realizing that zero interest savings rate isn't going to get them anywhere. And, yeah. you know, whether it's, we're all influenced by a number of different types of things, and we can just classify it as, as various forms of propaganda, whether, you know, we're seeing teens make money with TikTok and, or pretend like they are. And these things are, are very um, hard to ignore when you're somebody who's watching people pretend like they have the perfect life and they make perfect investments every time and they're making all this money and, ooh, I signed up for this Forex trading class and, and now I have a Lamborghini. Um, there's a lot of that stimulus coming in. Well, meanwhile, Wall Street just feels like this impenetrable wall to climb over. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know what the exact question there is, but, you know, for you being, again, someone who, who really has that human connection on both sides, do you see there, there, 
the potential of, of a of a bridge being built again where being a fiduciary actually means something for the average guy or are we really in that stage of the fourth turning where this is going to go until it can't go yeah yeah it's a, it's a, it's a really really good question john and and i think i think there's two sides to the answer and, and the first answer is there's never been a better time to be a seeker of this information because thanks to things like Twitter, it's out there and you can engage with the Mike Greens of the world. You know, Mike's a, a really good friend and, a, and a, one of the most, and I use this word, generally frighteningly intelligent people you'll ever meet. I mean, his intellect is, is frightening. But he's out there and he'll interact with you on Twitter. And, and so for those who are, are seeking this information and want to understand it and want to know this stuff, how to protect themselves, what does vol mean, people that, that know what the right questions are, I think is what I'm trying to say, have never had a better opportunity to get the answers to those questions from the right people. So that's, that's a fantastic side of this, is that you, you can do that. Um, and just to preface, the flips, interrupt you, these yeah. people like Mike Green, you know, from the outside looking in, are extremely intimidating, but they don't bite. These are really... No, no, no. I, it's, a, it's a great point to make. It's a, it's a great point to make. I mean, you know, people, I've, I've talked about this before, but, but you know, we as human beings are hardwired to help people. Like it's in our nature. If someone asks you for help, unless you're a certain kind of person, you, you instantly want to help that person. And if you can't, then you can't. But your instinct is to, yeah, well, what can I do? Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, the most, for the most part, everybody on Twitter has been, is great in terms of, offering an answer to a question. But, but I think the flip side of that is that I don't think it's ever been harder to know what the right questions are that you need answered. That's a great that, point. that is the trouble, I think, is that there's, there's so much noise. And, and to your point about the rules being changed, there, there are so many moving parts to this that, that don't function either like they used to do or like you think they do. Yeah. And then throw into the mix um, the the fact that you can't really rely on regulators to regulate anymore because the 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 problems that will arise should they do that, particularly in the kind of fraud space at the end of the cycle, if they start to actually take down some of these big companies, you look how hard it is for the for the Marcohodes of the world to take down frauds these days. Um, so it's never been harder to know what questions to ask. And, and that's the kind of thing that I think everybody has to wrestle with is how do I know what I want? I've got all these guys over here that can give me answers, but I don't know what to ask them. And so I think it pays to, to try and find reasonable voices, people who, who aren't dogmatic about anything, who are, who are open-minded, who are intellectually curious. Um, find those people and they're out there and just listen to them. And I think by listening to these people talk and, and getting an understanding of their point of view, I, I think if you're paying attention, the questions will present themselves to you. There will be parts you understand and you'll be given new perspectives on things that will really make you think. And there'll be parts that set all kinds of fires in your head thinking either mm -hmm. I don't understand that and it's way above my pay grade, which is absolutely fine, or it's I don't understand that it feels like it's important to me. I need to understand that more. And then you have a world out there where you can go out and say, look, hey, guys, does anyone, can anyone help me understand this? 
So, so I think they're the, they're the two situations that people are wrestling with right now is I don't know what the questions are. I've got all these guys over here that can answer them for me. So, so understanding what the questions are are the, are the most important thing to start with right now. And that requires essentially suspending trust that everything is as you're being told by yeah. either, either Wall Street in the world of finance or by the government in, in the real economy. You have to suspend that. You have to lose that trust for formerly trusted institutions and assume that everything is questionable and start asking, start questioning things that until two, three, four, five years ago, you just took for granted. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. It, it, you know, it's something came into my, into my head as you're talking about that. I think there's also a severe lack of responsibility, like people not willing to take responsibility for that journey. And um, they're not really interested in asking questions to get an answer. They, they just want somebody to do it for them. And, and it's kind of like, it's not until you start to become, you're either naturally cynical or something happens that just starts to push you down that path. Yeah. You start, you start looking for the white rabbit, right? You start trying, like there's something you know, there, there's, there's something behind the curtain and I don't know what curtain it is, which one to, to look behind, but I, I need to start pulling curtains aside. Um, and most people just aren't there yet. And I think speaking from my own journey, um, I'm not afraid to jump head first in, but it's still incredibly intimidating. And so for the average person, you talk about how we are as people, we are social creatures. And one of the innate fears that we have you can call it, you know, fear of rejection, imposter syndrome is being, you know, discarded from the group because in our DNA, it means you don't survive. Yeah. And that's turned into this, this thing of like, I don't want to look stupid. And one of the things I've taken away from, you know, having conversations with you and everybody who's in the space and even guys like Mike Green is you're going, you're, you're going to look stupid. And yeah. You're, oh, absolutely. You're going to make mistakes. And it's this, it's the people who have the, the loud, loudest voices and get the most attention that pretend like they have all the answers. So and true. Unfortunately, so that true. resonates to, to way too many people. Yeah, it's, it's really true. I, you know, I, th- I think that point about, I think there's a very healthy level of cynicism that, that you need. Um, because as, as Jerry Maguire said, we live in a cynical, cynical world, right? And so I think you, I think there's a healthy level of cynicism, and I think it, it's it's something that you tend to get as you grow older, because that when you're young, you're, you're not really engaged in the world, or right? you're engaged in your own little world with your buddies and your own little life, and then you, you know, you move to your own family, and and and, that, and you're working on the side, and some people go on that path when they're working, but over time you start to kind of develop that cynicism. You slowly realise that you know, everything isn't as you were taught and it's not how it's supposed to be. And, and there are things that are wrong. And some people just refuse to entertain that and just close their eyes and that's fine. And some people, they go down that rabbit hole. But what's interesting to me as someone with a, with a 29-year-old daughter who I'm, I'm proud to say has inherited her father's cynicism, <laughs> but, it, but it's interesting that this generation seemed to have got there earlier than, you know, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, but, but the millennials and the Gen Zs seem to have reached that level of cynicism quicker, which I, f- I find interesting because whether that is social, a social media phenomenon or whether it's 
a result of the times we live in and fake news and just mistrust that's everywhere, I don't know. So in some ways, I think that's very healthy, but in other ways, I think it's very dangerous because, because people tend to believe in nothing because they, they struggle to find something that they can anchor themselves to and, 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 and have faith that it is real and it's not part of the matrix, to, to use a hackneyed phrase. So it's, it's, it, it's a very, very interesting point in time now. And I think, to your point, if people are paying attention and seeking this stuff out and not afraid to look stupid, um, the answers are out there and you've never had better access to them. And, it, and it's, I think it's incumbent upon everybody to, to, to chase those rabbits down those holes. Um, but just kind of keep a rope tied to the tree when you, when you jump in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've got, I got Lebowski quotes running through my head when you said people you know, end up not believing in, in not things. I believe in not things. And, and, right. and, it, and it's, it's very much that. There is a, a sense of, of nihilism um, running through it all. But your point about, you know, there seems to be a, an acceleration of, of, of people's ability to, you know, become cynical and, and how that leads to it in, in a lot of ways to enlightenment. Um, this is kind of a weird jump, but I, I feel like when you look at the, we'll, we'll say um, the millennials, for a lack of a, of a better demographic to pick, they've become cynical and their outlet seems to be crypto and Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to talk about your Endgame podcast here in a minute, but um, I was listening to your interview with Jim Rogers, which is always, I feel like the two of you guys should have like a, a weekly television show. Um, <laughs> I, don't think you, I don't think you put up me that often. <laughs> But I mean, in terms of storytellers, right? I mean, it's just, it's just good stuff. But it was interesting to hear, you know, you got your interlude into the topic because um, it seems to me that you, you know, you have a, um, an embrace of Bitcoin that I, I wouldn't expect that you to have. And you're a sound money guy. I mean, you're, you're a big yeah. component of gold. Um, so where, where do you share your opinion on, on, on Bitcoin and, and, and let's have a, a, a quick conversation about how it's, sure. it's something that that we'll call it demographic or new class of cynicists are, are flocking to. Yeah. I, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I've been asked about Bitcoin a lot and I'm my, um, my response is always kind of curiosity really when, when there are so many super smart, guys out there in the crypto space, you know, the Robert Breedloves of the world, the Preston Pishes of the world, the Michael Saylors of the world. You know, these are, these are super smart people, gifted communicators about the topic and they're passionate about it. And I haven't represented myself t- to be any of those things, right? Um, but, but what's interesting is I, as someone who has an understanding of monetary history, as someone who is very much a proponent of, sound money, precious metals, whatever it may be. I understand Bitcoin. I, I totally get the case for Bitcoin and I, and I sympathize with it enormously. Um, I'm absolutely not a Bitcoin hater and never have been. I don't think I've ever written anything negative about Bitcoin. I have, a, I have questions that I want answered about it, which, which we'll come on to in a second. But what I found um, when I first kind of got interested in the precious metal space, you know, 20 odd years ago now, I guess, um, I found two types of people in that space. Uh, I found the, the dogmatic people who 
like the guy who stands out in the middle of the street thumping his Bible, screaming at the end is nigh and wants to shout at you about the Bible. Yeah. What does everybody do? They cross the road and they walk the other way, right? Because you just don't want to engage with that guy. And then there, were the, then there were the Rick Rules of the world who are remarkably great thinkers and very gifted but quiet communicators. And it, it was apparent to me very, very quickly that if you want to have a conversation with someone about something that they either don't understand or they're inclined to not want to understand or, frankly, they're frightened of, banging the drum, running towards them and screaming, we've got to talk about gold or we've got to talk about Bitcoin, yeah, you've got yeah. to listen to me, is absolutely the wrong way to engage anybody. And so when I look at the, the cryptocurrency space, the Bitcoin space, which however you want to split it up, and I know now that those two are, are, are kind of button heads, when I look at that and I look at the, the tub thumpers, I just think, guys, you're, you're missing the trick here. When you demonize the people that don't agree with your investment case, and you know, we're, we've, we've kind of, Bill and I have brought up Bitcoin on, with just about all our guests on the Endgame podcast, um, none of whom are, 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 are crypto advocates, but they're all seasoned investors. And I'll, I'll bring the question up with all of them. And generally speaking, they've been dismissive of it. And I know, as, as someone who's done plenty of interviews, I know when there's nothing to engage in. I know when there's no point in pushing them on a subject because it's clear that they, they don't have the regard for it that would suggest they're interested in either talking about it past the point they already have or they've done an awful lot of work on it. So I know, so I'll, I'll just let it go. And Bill and I are going to do a piece on, on, on Bitcoin specifically and, and address some of this stuff with, with someone who is in the space, which will be interesting. I'm looking forward to that. But, um, but when I look at the tub thumpers and the, and the evangelists, yeah. I, it, it turns me off. I, 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 don't, I don't need to be sold Bitcoin. I understand it. What I want are answers to my concerns about it. And this comes back to the conversation we've had already about understanding the risks and and, and uh, calculating the chance of them being wrong. You know, right now, to me, Bitcoin is all about the price. It's all about the price. This is all about, we've, we've broken 19, we've broken 20, we've broken 23. And, you know, God bless everybody that's in this thing and has held on. It's amazing. I'm really happy for them. I, I, I had, you know, people taking me in tweets and, oh, I'm so upset that I'm missing out. I, 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 don't, I don't give it a thought. I, I'm doing what I'm doing. And I, I honestly don't give it a second thought. Um, because I, I don't have the comfort level of making a big allocation to Bitcoin because of these questions that I don't have answered. And unfortunately, the questions I have about its, its sustainability, its longevity in the face of um, pernicious governments, for example, which is one of my biggest fears, don't allow me, the price doesn't override those concerns. Just because it's 23,000 now, I can't get comfortable with questions I don't have the answers to just because it's 23,000. I wasn't comfortable with those questions at 9,000. I wasn't comfortable with them at 17,000 the first time. I wasn't necessarily comfortable when they went down to 3,000. So for me, if I can get comfortable with the reservations I have, which I'm hoping to explore in a, in a different set of podcasts, then at that point, I start thinking, okay, at this price, what am I comfortable allocating to Bitcoin? I don't think, oh, I could have bought it $7,000 ago or I'm going to wait until it's going to... If I'm comfortable with it as an investment, then I'm comfortable with it as an investment and I can start allocating to it. So I, I, I get it. I think 
I, I'm, so I'm in the middle of writing a piece about it called Perfect Money in an Imperfect World because I, I think that's what it is. I think when people talk about Bitcoin as perfect money, it's as close as we've come to perfect money. I, I think that's true. But the world is imperfect. And those imperfections, unfortunately, are very much part of the design of the world we live in. And the fact that Bitcoin challenges many of those imperfections and the people who make the rules rely on those imperfections to keep them in a position to make the rules causes me to be, if not fearful, then certainly doubtful about certain parts of this. So, you know, I, I try and be thoughtful in everything I do and, and I include Bitcoin in that. And, um, you know, it's amazing that, that, that people have me down as a hater simply because I haven't gone out and proclaimed my undying love for Bitcoin, mm -hmm. it, it, which, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. I'm a, I'm a pragmatist, I'm a realist, and, and, I, and I, as we've spoken about a lot in this last hour, is I have questions that I want answers to and I'm, I'm going to continue to try and find the best people who can give me the answers that I'm looking for. Yeah, if, if people can bear with us in this conversation and, and really see the, the arc or the timeline that we've kind of gone through, this is an interesting point in this discussion because everything we talked about, and this is a completely organic talk, we didn't have anything really structured, but you look at what we've kind of gone through, we talked a little bit about history, what's going on in society, um, just generally how people are, are disenchanted with the system and, and you know, with good reason, look at the stimulus bill and, and all these types of things. And, and now you get to a point where information's moving so quick, you have you know, an explosion of cynicism. And it, one of the things you just said, I think really you know, puts a punctuation on all of this and what we've been talking about, because the, the, the rules and the system, I think it's like, it's like people's interpretation of capitalism and why you see people screaming for socialism. We don't have capitalism. We have yeah. this broken, corrupted, distraught, purely corrupt system of, of feudalism, right? And, it's, and it's, it's not true capitalism. It's because the rules are being bended and abused. And, you know, even in, in to your, the point you make about the, the piece that you're writing, you know, perfect money. I, I think, you know, the idea of having this finite, finite supply in theory sounds really good. But what you basically have happen is, you know, I think the, the what in terms of the, the religious fervor around Bitcoin and, and the salvation it's supposed to provide, I think it getting to $23,000 because of Michael Saylor and because of um, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, it's, it's now a finite supply of something that's been cornered, cornered by yeah. deeper deeper pockets. And in, in an event of a, a, re, a recession or some sort of catastrophic, catastrophic black swan event, um, you, you need to a certain extent, in my opinion, a flexible credit-based system. Now, obviously what we've seen central bankers do over the past three decades is not that. It's, it's you know, enriching their friends, keeping keeping people, you know, bankers and whatnot in, in powers of position and, and making money. Um, it's, it hasn't been about a fair distribution of credit or any of that. And so you, you kind of have, you have this tug of war between, I think, two things that are too far on both sides. You have a, a broken financial system or the, the abuse of 
the credit system and those who have power has gotten so ridiculous that you now have this massive wealth gap, inequality, and it's going to lead to this fourth turning type of event. And on the other side, you have, I think, an equal extreme, which is, you know, it, it, some people call it a Ponzi. I don't really think it's a Ponzi. It's just, it, it's just a narrative that's driving a trade. And it doesn't, to me, yeah. it doesn't to me feel like it's going to be the end all be all. But in the meantime, it's going to make a lot of people a shitload of money because it's so early in the space. It's the first mover. It's the Coca-Cola of the space. And but I, you know, in terms of a believer of sound money and, and hoping to see some sort of, you know, monetary salvation um, and, and, and coming out of this as a, as, a, as a species and as a human race in a place that's more utopian, um, I think it's a, it's a move in the right direction. And I'm a huge advocate of, of crypto because I feel like overall it's putting power back in the hands of people who, who should have it, the intellectuals, the creators they're the artisans of the digital world, right? You know, you go back way, 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 way back. You had the blacksmith, you know, you had all these other types of people who had specific skill sets. And I think you're seeing this new mercantile world be created in the digital sense. And it's out of the hands of the haves. And it's, it's an open playing field for anybody to get involved. And, you know, hearing conversations and, and not picking on, um, you know, Jim Rogers, but I mean, he, some of the comments he made to me are very indicative of, of that tug of war that's going on. You have this old guard, the institutional space, and, and they kind of see it as this thing and, and they're fearful of governments. And then in the same conversation that you'd have with someone like that, they'll talk about how all oh, the system, like we're talking, oh, the system's broken and it's, it's just a joke. And Japan is, you know, basically pinned its interest rates and there is no bond market. And, you know, the U.S. is just as bad, but it's the cleanest dirty. You, know, you can go on and on and on about, you know, how distraught everything is um, and how unfair and broken it is. And then you have this, in, in reality, you have this monetary revolution happening right under our nose. And then it's like, oh, but I'm not going to join the revolution. They're, they're just going to get shot at by, you know, by the imperial guards. And so to me, that's, that's kind of the problem I have. And I'm not a maxi at all. And I'm not going to sit here and, 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 you know, talk about altcoins don't blue in the face because I'm trying to pump price. I'm just saying in terms of, of, of the overarching thing that is happening, you look at the arc of the conversation we've had and now here we are. I think this is the revolution that needs to be paid attention to. And at some point, there is going to be this, you know, these various movements of, you know, central bank, digital currencies, et cetera, et cetera. But that's missing the point. It's still treating it like it's a trade. And I think you have this cynicism and this, you know, wanting to opt out of the system that has been unfair and is centralized to a more decentralized game, or at least a game where the um, playing field is a bit more level or, you know, the barrier to entry is non-existent in a lot of ways. And so when I hear the, the kind of the, the debate that goes on and anytime you have this much back and forth, there's this much fighting going on, you got to take a seat in the arena and watch. Right. Yeah. Um, but for me, the conversation sometimes feels like it's just missing it from both sides because this is the revolution that everyone for the past, how many decades who's been, you know, anti-Fed, you know, anti-QE and, and wanting a more, 
you know, true capitalism, this is the beginning. Just like we were talking about, this is just the beginning of the dystopian. They're going to work hand in hand, right? It's going to get more and more tense and the, the rope is going to be pulled more and more tight as those who have power try to hold on to it. And those who are kind of this new bread of revolution start to build their, their, their own monetary world. Yeah, there's, there's, there's so much interest in what you said, John. Um, you know, I think, um, let's go back to, to Jim for a minute. You know, here's a guy who is one of the biggest legends in the financial industry of his era, right? I mean, he's an extraordinarily successful investor. He's an extraordinarily experienced investor. He's traveled the world. He's done things that people in finance could only ever dream about. He's so macro and, that he moved to Singapore so his kids could speak. Right, right. But, yeah. but here's a guy, he's, he's done it all, right? He's done it all and he's done it as well or better than anybody. And, he, and he's living proof. You read his books. I mean, he's, he's a remarkable man. Um, and so I, I kind of shake my head when, when Jim comes on and sits and talks with Fleck and I and says, ah, Bitcoin, Schmitcoin, effectively, right? Now, Jim doesn't need to learn about Bitcoin. Jim doesn't need to spend the time digging into it. If he doesn't think it's anything, he's going to ignore it. Um, and if he's wrong, I promise you this, it's not going to affect his life in a negative way, right? right. But, but people who have no idea who Jim Rogers is yeah. will will write in and comment stuff. This guy's an idiot and he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just an old boomer. No, you know, there has to be some respect about this discourse. People don't need to believe in Bitcoin. If they don't and they miss out, hey, that's not your problem. And it may not even be their problem because they may not care. They may be doing other things. Yeah. I think that's a really important thing that people need to understand. Yeah, it comes back to that tub thumping thing. But the other thing you said that, that I find really interesting when, when we're talking about this 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 way that Bitcoin gives people this kind of end around, uh, this, this way out of this system. And if we go back to what you and I were talking about a while ago in terms of the system breaking down and what the powers that be need to do to keep it together, yeah. there you run into one of my big questions about this whole thing. Because I think everything you said is 100% true. Bitcoin does all those things. It offers all those escape routes. It offers all that flexibility. It offers all the things that the system doesn't offer. But going forward and beginning in 2008 and picking up speed, you can see it. The people who make the rules are getting more and more desperate to keep this thing together. Yep. And you called Bitcoin a revolution. And well, it absolutely is. No, but, it, no, but, but it, you're absolutely right. It's a revolutionary protocol. It's revolutionary money. It's all these things. But that word revolution is absolutely right. And it's absolutely dangerous Correct. because when people in power see a revolution stirring, they squash it. And so, you know, that's one of my big questions. And I, I, I don't have the answer to it yet. Um, I'm certainly, unfortunately, the, the, the more Bitcoin gets embedded, the safer it looks and the more dangerous it looks at the same time. You know, it's like Schrodinger's cryptocurrency. Right, it's safe and dangerous at exactly the same time, um, and so I, I find it fascinating to watch this. And, and I think the other point you made, which is which is absolutely true, is this is the cornering of this thing, which I, I think is very very important, because 
we, we've kind of reached that point where, uh, and, and again, as I said, I've, I've got nothing but good things to say about Michael Saylor. I mean, he's here is a brilliant guy, a superb communicator, a brave, bold man who's making some extraordinary moves. Uh, you know, to, to, to buy half a billion dollars in Bitcoin in your treasury and then go and tell everyone you've done it is smart because it puts a massive bid under the stock and makes you money away. To go and borrow 400 million more uh, at 75 basis points and tell everyone you're going to buy more Bitcoin with it is even smarter, in my mm. view. Yeah. Um, but it's becoming, to me, as someone who is a very interested observer, but outside the arena, to your, to your, to your point, it's becoming something that is starting, whether it is or not, to look very much like not a pump and dump, because I don't, I don't, that is a very pejorative statement, but it, it looks very much like there are a group of people here who are running this thing up. And we've seen the Druckermillers and the Tudor Joneses of the world, smart guys all, and absolutely not trying to do things that are outside the, the bounds of the rules. But these guys are smart and savvy traders. And when they come out and tell you that they're kind of warming up to Bitcoin or they think Bitcoin could have a place in a portfolio, I guarantee you they're not thinking of buying it tomorrow. I guarantee you they've already got their position on because they know exactly the effect that them coming out as proponents of Bitcoin will have. And it's, it's working and it's feeding on itself and we're seeing that. And that's what's driven this spiral now. Um, we've seen all these headlines about adoption. So it, on the one hand, it makes perfect sense to me as to why it's going up like it is because of all these positive headlines. But the fact that that is all feeding on itself uh, worries me because, again, you know, you, you have this concentration, you have these very high-profile guys. And, you know, my, my great friend Ben Hunt, who is, who is, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of voodoo dolls among the Bitcoiners of Ben, um, because he's, he, he's, he's not, ironically, like me, he's not a Bitcoin denier. He just sees the limitations and he sees that this is, this is an asset that Wall Street is in the process of co-opting. Um, and when he talks about the guys who are making a lot of noise in Bitcoin, not necessarily being revolutionaries and looking to build a new, better system, but rather Wall Street guys looking to make a profit, yes. I think he's absolutely right. I think he's absolutely right. These guys know how to make money. They recognize an asset that they can make money in. And they're absolutely feeling that. Now, they, they may well believe all the stuff, but I guarantee you, for most of them, profit is their number one objective. And this thing, the way it's structured, the way it trades, the way it's held, is, I would say, the single best opportunity they've had to make money from something in their careers. I haven't heard anyone come out and say that this is the single greatest money-making vehicle I've ever seen in my career, but I bet you a lot of them are thinking that. Yeah, and... and Agreed. And, and that's kind of the, the point I was making. And the, the other point I'm making too is just the overall. So what you said about Jim, I, I think is, is spot on. There's, there's a, a contingent of people who don't need to have an opinion on it and therefore they don't. Right. Um, I think, I think the main point I'm making in terms of not Jim specifically, but just what he said that I think applies to a lot of people is that, you know, when that revolution comes, like, it's one thing to be patriotic and then, you know, everyone knocks on your door and says, grab your gun. You know, the British are coming. You're like, ah, I'm going to, I'm going to tap out of this one. 
right? right. And that, that's kind of kind of the thing is is uh, well, I like I like the idea of Bitcoin, but you know, as Jim put it, which I think really emphasizes the point, um, you know, they're going to label it as treason and then shoot you. And that's I'm paraphrasing his words. And again, this is not. Jim is not hating on Bitcoin. You, you got to understand how the guy, like I said, the two of you are, are, are a great company because the way you, you illustrate a point. Um, but to me, that's a bit of it is everybody, everybody wants the system to be fixed, but nobody wants to be in a position where they end up taking a bullet in order to change things. And so, so for a lot of times for me, when I hear people talk about it and, and it's, the pushback is, and again, let's not get into all the, the, the channels and, and, you know, corners of, of crypto, but when people say, uh, you know, you can't buy bread with it. And, and, and again, it, to me, it's like they've, a lot of ways when people say that, it's like they've already made up their mind and they're creating a narrative to support it. Um, and it's stuff like that, I think, that's why you kind of have the tub thumpers because they're just trying but you, to- But you see, John, and that's, that's what's interesting, right? Because when someone says that to you, mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. They've made up their mind. There really isn't any point in you then trying to push that dialogue further, right? They are either going to continually hear about Bitcoin and make the decision on their own, you know what, maybe I should look into this a bit more, or they're just going to push back at you. And the more you try and force this idea upon them that you're wrong about Bitcoin, you're wrong, the more they're going to go, just stop. You can't buy everything. So that's the bit that, I don't understand is that when you when you get people who are who are receptive to this, talk to them. When you have people who come to you and say, "Hey, you're a Bitcoin guy. Can you help me understand this?" Give them all your time. But but to stand, you know, and I get this with Fleck all the time because you know Fleck is is on the record as saying he's not a fan of it. And and you know he he makes the point repeatedly that it's a risk management thing for him. He can't manage the risk around it. Um, and people just wail on him, and it's like, what are you doing? Yeah. It doesn't matter if he thinks it's not for him. It, it genuinely doesn't matter. Um, so it's like it's 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 a real battleground right now, which which I think is a shame, because um, as I said, there are some gifted communicators on the on the on the Bitcoin side, really gifted communicators. I mean, I'm I, I'm I'm blown away by the quality of their thinking and the quality of how they lay this out. But it's wrapped in this kind of veneer of of evangelism that I think if they could lose that. And, and walk up to people slowly and say, hey, I want to talk to you about this, rather than thumping the Bible and saying, the end is nigh unless you listen to me. Yeah, I just yeah. think that message will resonate a, a lot better for them. Yeah, I, every time you, you make that reference, I, I get a visual. Um, there's a place in, in the business, we'll call it the, the CBD, the Central Business District of Honolulu, called Fort Street. And this place could be so much more attractive than it is. And it's not attractive at all. It's kind of like this cobblestone area and a, a lot of the businesses or a lot of the buildings where businesses operate, they all pour out, you know, lunchtime into this like corridor of cafes and stuff. And, um, but there's, you know, Hawaii is not short of having its problem. And there's all kinds of just like meth heads walking around, you know, their pants hanging off. So, um, the parts of Hawaii, you don't see people when you go on. Right, yeah. Right. right. <laughs> but there's always this guy, at this one part of Fort Street, just you talk about thumping the you know the tub, and uh, you can't understand what the hell he's saying, anyways. Right. I mean, 
Literally. Have you ever seen anybody cross the road and try and go and talk to them? <laughs> no, it's, right. it's, like, it's like a river yeah. going around a rock. Of course it is. Of course <laughs> it is. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting you make this point and, and, you know, talking about just ramming it down people's throats. <laughs> I'm going to tease you a little bit. Um, your end game, right? Yeah. Grant Williams is, is almost to a certain extent synonymous with the idea of, of something tra- catastrophic coming because of this fiscal profligacy, right? And, and so you, you do this end game um, podcast ser- series. Now, is it really, I mean, you're just picking some really smart people and trying to get a sense of, of, of their take on 2020 and, and, and the markets in general. Um, so, you know, without tub thumping too hard, it's really not about an end game, would you say? It's, it's well, really... It's so interesting you say that, John. Yeah, we, we, I think our third guest, Mark Cahodes was the first guest because it was his idea that Fleck and I do this. Okay. Uh, I, think, I think then we had, um, well, maybe it was the second guest. I've, I've forgotten the order now, but, but Mike Green was one of our very early guests. Great, great, um, great interview with him. Uh, if anyone hasn't listened to it, it, yeah. it, will, it will bend your brain and really make you think. Um, definitely check it out. He, he, I mean, Mike's a smart guy, but I mean, this was as good as I've ever heard. He, was just, yeah, he, does, he, does, he does a lot of screen time, but that, that oh, was... But man, he was, this was something special. Yeah, but I'd anyway, put, but, but the, literally the first conversation we had, you know, we said to Mike, Welcome to the end game. And he said, you know, I've been thinking about this. He said, and of course, there isn't an end game, right? That, that was the first, literally the first word he said was there isn't an end game. And I'm like, well, there goes the series. But of course, he's absolutely right. What we're talking about by the end game is really more of a transition. It's, it's how do we get from here, you know, this financial system that we're in right now and, 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 and how it's functioned since, you know, the end of World War II effectively and then with a, with a shift since August 1971. How do we get from there to whatever comes next? If, if we assume that this financial system is, is close to its, the end of its shelf life, let's say. And there's, and there's all kinds of signs that that is true, not least of which is obviously the, the surge in chatter by people like the WEF about the, this great reset they're talking about. You know, that is, for anyone who doesn't understand it, is a reset of the financial system, right? They're that blatant about it. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, exactly. So, so really what the end game is about is, is this transition. What, what, what are we going from and what are we heading towards and, and how does that kind of play out across various asset classes? So that, that's really kind of what we're trying to, trying to get to. Um, and, and look, it would be a pretty tame podcast if that was the one question we are. So we, you know, we, we, what, we, what we try and do is just get a bunch of people who, who are going to have different and interesting perspectives based on their experiences and all the, all the kind of, corners of the market that they've inhabited throughout their careers and just get different perspectives on it. I think that's really all you can do because there isn't an answer, right? There, there isn't a correct answer and, and no one is going to give you that. But certainly my aim, and, and, I, and I, I don't want to put words in this, but I'm pretty sure those of Fleck are, are really to, to talk to thoughtful people, uh, gather opinions, and then as we said in this conversation, you know, let people think about them for themselves. You know, one of the big themes that's recurring throughout the series has been this, this change from a deflationary environment to an inflationary environment. Um, you know, that's something else. There's been plenty of false dawns over the last 40, 50 years since we saw, yeah. you know, 40 years since we saw the end of the last inflationary cycle. 
Um, and so to get Russell Napier and Lacey Hunt back to back episodes talking about where they see this, you know, both of whom Lacey's been a deflationist for 40 years, yeah. staunch, resolute, hasn't wavered once. Russell's been a deflationist for 20 years, same, staunch, resolute, unwavering. And yet now Russell has said, I'm off that train. I, I think inflation's coming. I think it's going to come pretty quick. Uh, and he's calling for 4% inflation by the end of 2021. Now, whatever you think, if you've paid attention to Lacey and Russell over the last 20 years, here is a moment in time where something important's happened. Because one of these two guys who is an absolute hardcore, no turning back deflationist has changed. And when someone has been right about something so important on a macro level for 20 years and hasn't changed, when they change, you need to be saying, okay, why? Why has this guy who's been so right for so long changed? And the fact that you've got another guy who's also been right, who isn't changing, is incredibly fortunate because you get to stress test both sides of the argument. Right. And then comes the most important part and the most difficult part. You've then got to decide for yourself who you think's right. And that's what this is all about. Let's, let's present to you the smartest people you'll find talking about the things that matter. But ultimately, it is up to you to decide what to do from this point. No one can tell you. And, and, and if, you, if you leave those kinds of decisions to other people, I and mean, I'm not talking that if you've, if you've got your 401k being managed by someone, but if you're investing your own money and you're listening to these conversations and you want someone to tell you what to do, you're missing the point. The whole yeah. point is to get the information and learn how to process it yourself and, and make decisions that reflect how that information affects you and your portfolio. So I think you know, that those two conversations, Lacey and Russell, were extraordinarily well-timed and had a lot of people's heads spinning just because right. they're both so credible and the rationale they both lay out is so compelling and they both come to completely different conclusions. And that is so valuable if you sit and think about that. But to, to extract that value from it, you have to work out what it means for you. And, and no one else can do that for you. So, you, you know, 2020 is 2020. We're all in these lockdowns. Um, and you might have launched the Grant Williams podcast before that. So Endgame is kind of like this piece within the Grant Williams podcast. It's kind of like the Conan O'Brien show with Andy, right? So right. It's, it's like Grant Williams with, with Fleck is, right. is really the Endgame. And so you've, you've accumulated quite a catalog. And so you mentioned Mike Green, which is a must-list, and you, this you know, unique situation or um, you know, dichotomy between Napier and Lacey Hunt. Um, are, are there any others within that catalog where, you know, you, you were left blown away or it was just such oh. a, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's I a mean, John, I, 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 we, We've been so fortunate. Um, yeah, I think we've done 13 of these now. <clears throat> the, the most recent one was episode 13 with, with James Aitken. And James is the only guest we've had on twice. But um, every single one of those guests was absolutely on fire when they came on. I mean, and this is not me and Fleck, but we haven't had a weak show 
because every single guest has just been extraordinary. I mean, they really have been. And I think from from Mike Green talking about passive investing and 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 blowing people's minds when he did it because he did it in a way that if you if it I mean it didn't leave you sitting there scratching your head for about three days. Mm-hmm. You didn't listen to it properly. From him to Chris Cole doing the same with volatility. I mean, Chris was extraordinary. To Felix Zulauf talking about the macro world, and, and Felix is one of the most impressive thinkers I've ever come across in, in my entire career. Um, to Jim Grant being Jim Grant, as, as only Jim Grant can, and, and being so eloquent about the situation. Um, you know, to Fred Hickey giving you an absolute masterclass in understanding how to think about gold and gold mining stocks. And then, you know, James Aitken, who, who we were very fortunate to get to come on in the early days of the podcast. He just doesn't do many of these things. Um, he's a brilliant, brilliant thinker. Uh, he's on um, Twitter at Aitken, A-I-T-K-E-N, advisors. And I would encourage everybody to follow James. Uh, he really is an extraordinary thinker, as you'll hear if you listen to his the podcast. And we had James come back on um, in the most recent one to just kind of look through 2020 and look ahead to 2021. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a mark, I think, of James uh, that the first thing he wanted to do in that discussion was talk about what he got wrong this year. And, you know, little things like that uh, don't necessarily resonate with everybody. But when you get someone like James come and say, well, you know what, the first thing I want to do is talk about what I got wrong this year. That's something that, frankly, should be the first thing everybody does. Yeah. And, and it's a lesson that I know plenty of people will have picked up and thought, well, you know, that's, that's a smart thing to do. And other people would have gone, ha, this guy's an idiot. He obviously got a load of stuff wrong this year. And each to their own. But from, for, for, from all those guys, um, it, the thinking has just been next level. And I think the, the, the beauty of the, the podcasting world, as, as you and I, demonstrating here is the ability to just sit and talk and yeah. and not try and cram stuff in and, and not try and say, look, we've got 20 minutes to do this. And to, to have these conversations evolve and give people the room and the, and the latitude to just think out loud, you know, Jim Rogers, I mean, Jim came on and uh, it, it was, it was the most relaxed I've ever heard Jim in an interview. Um, some of the stuff he was talking about was, just fantastic. You know, we're talking about Chinese, these Chinese wine stocks he was investing in. That's got nothing to do with the end game. Yeah. But it, it was so interesting to hear him talk about this stuff. And, and the whole idea that, that, that Fleck and I have tried to, to create here is just to create content that's valuable to people, right? And, and, and I'm, I'm confident in saying that every single one of these episode is valuable in its own way and, and some of it will be more valuable to some people than others and some of it less so but if you can't find something of value in in these conversations i'd i'd be surprised frankly because every single one of these guests has been just brilliant so for me starting a podcast was very much like i said i, I had this long journey down the rabbit hole um, and not many people will, will, will take it upon themselves to, to go through that type of mental abuse. And, and I, but I do think and it is, but then I, and yeah. I do think people need to start slowly chewing at, at the elephant. Right. And so for doing the podcast for me, it's like having an opportunity to, to talk to someone like you. And 
outside of what you've done just in the podcast, I mean, your entire life is a massive catalog of conversations and thoughts and experiences. And, you know, for a lot of people to, to just go right to the end of the chapter, right to the end of the book, they miss the entire story before that. And, and a lot of financial podcasts, I mean, you know, some of the ones I've listened to recently, even having gone on, on this journey for some time, I have to listen like two, three times before some of it even, it, it's, it's a lot and, and, and that's okay. But for me, I'm wanting to bring some of these people on who usually talk at such a high level and think at such a high level to bring it down to a, a little bit more of a, of a palatable, we'll call it retail experience so they can start to chew on it and then therefore say, okay, I, ca- I kind of get this and then be ready to dive into, you know, yeah. the end game. And otherwise no one's going to look at their list of, of um, potential listens on a Saturday afternoon on iTunes and be like, hmm, Lacey Hunt, that sounds interesting. You know, it, it's just, it's just not going to happen. Right. But, but once you start to climb that mountain, you can see the peak and like, Ooh, I want to climb the Lacey Hunt peak because yeah. wow, that that's, that's going to be one heck of a gem when I get there. And, and so, you know, being a very crazy year, um, you know, my business was very busy I, you know, I had to take a hiatus from it. And now here I am <laughs> locked in a hotel. So what better time to, to, to kind of relaunch and, and entertain myself with guys like you. And certainly for you, like we mentioned, you're now in a quarantine world in, in the Cayman Islands and, and it's a bubble, right? Everybody's now living in these little bubbles. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm sure to a certain extent, being incredibly intellectually curious as you are, the podcast has been a way to keep you sane and oh, absolutely. Yeah. engaged yeah. as well. So assuming and pretending the world is normal again from a, from a COVID standpoint, um, what, what would you do? What would Grant Williams, what would be the, the journey you would embark on next when you could you know, break free of Cayman Islands and, and see the world and see your friends again? Is, is there something you've been thinking about as, as the next chapter? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's so many things I want to do. You know, I, what, what, what this what this lockdown has has really taught me is is how much I enjoy traveling and how much I enjoy meeting people and talking to people about this stuff. Because, you know, it, a couple of years ago, uh, I took 154 flights in a year. Wow! And and when you when I kind of looked at that number, when I was going through it at the end of the year. I was like, boy, oh boy! And I was tired. You know, I was tired. Um, and 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 you kind of think about it. You think about the process of getting from A to B, and and the longer you do it, the more you think about the process because that's what tires you out. You don't you you forget about what happens when you get to B and you get to sit down and have yeah. these amazing conversations with extraordinary people. Um, and it, although every time I got to B, I was energized and it was um, it was amazing. And on the flight from B to C, I'd still be buzzing about this conversation, yeah, but yeah. It, it just kind of wears you down. So, so I, I think what this has, has really taught me is that I need to I need to get back to doing that. I need to be traveling. I need to be sitting down and talking to people and, you know, sharing that inf- information with people. And, and, I, and when I, I made a, a series for, for Real Vision when I was there, um, called In Conversation With, and, I, and I, I spend a lot of time writing the introduction to that series because, you know, a big part of how I think about this stuff uh, we touched upon it earlier on is this idea that everything needs to boil down to a trade. You have to have an actionable idea for everything. 
and I, and I, I get that. Um, I understand why people want that. But for me, it, it, it's the last, I mean, it's literally the last thing I want. I don't want someone to tell me what to do. I want someone to explain to me how to think. Because if I know how to think, I can come up with what to do much, much easier. And so if I want to know what to do, there are a thousand people who will sell me a service that will tell me what to do, a thousand of them. Um, and some of them will probably make me a lot of money. But it won't, it won't teach me how to think about this stuff. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very keen to get back to doing that. I'm very keen to, to, to share that thinking and share that kind of approach to this with, with people. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of people with whom that doesn't resonate. They're, they're not looking at how to think. They do want to know what to think, and that's absolutely fine. Um, but for me, I think there's a much smaller audience out there of people who understand the value of learning how to think about things. And, and they're the people, I think, who naturally kind of gravitate towards the way I do things. And they're, they're the people who, I, who I'm looking to engage with because I think, I think that, that community of people are underserved. I think there's, 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 there's too many people out there now who want to tell you what to do. And I, I think there are too few people out there trying to teach you how to think. And so you know, I, I want to be someone that, that, that does that. And, and I want to get back to doing it as soon as I possibly can, which is probably going to mean we have a vaccine. But um, if that's what it takes for me to be able to get on a plane and, and travel and go and sit and talk to people again, then, you know, I'll, I'll do it. Well, I'm sure all of us are eagerly waiting for life to get back to normal for no other reason than to see you vaccinated and traveling, traveling the world. And I, I no, in all seriousness, I know there's many of us who are looking forward to to that next chapter. I mean, you, you've brought us a lot of, of entertainment, a lot of knowledge and, and, and insight and, and certainly a lot of joy. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing you back out on the road again. And, and, uh, and again, for, for today, I can't thank you enough for, you know, taking so much time and, and, and catching up and, and sharing your, your thoughts on things. Mate, it's, it's a pleasure. Absolutely. Anytime. It's a shame you and I didn't get to, to see each other in person again this year. It would have been nice, but hopefully 2021. Yes. Yeah, so let's, let's keep our fingers crossed for that. But Jim, I mean, uh, Grant, I can't thank you enough. This has been, this has been fantastic. And, and that last little bit there is, is a time, time stamp that I'm going to listen, listen to over and over the importance of, you know, looking for people who are going to teach you how to think more so than, than what to do. And um, that's one thing you've done for me uh, extensively. So I can't thank you enough. Then my work here is done. <laughs> thank you, mate. I appreciate yeah, it. Have a good one. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Money MBA podcast with your host, Jonathan Katsmita. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money mad pirates. To access more great content, visit us online at moneymba.com. That's where the money is. And more than that, control. There's only one person in the world to decide what I'm going to do, and that's me. And I am deadly serious about that. That's it, I'm done. <laughs>